Welcome to All Things New.Tech, where we are exploring the intersection of theology and technology. Technology is changing our jobs, relationships, and even our identities. It's so easy to get excited and also to have questions about the role of technology in our lives today. But as Christians, we also believe that God is redeeming this world through His effort, making all things new. In this podcast series, we are hosting conversations with entrepreneurs, technologists, and innovators, examining how technology transforms their understanding of God, His creation, and what it means to be human. Today, Paul Taylor from All Things New is talking with Pete Shou, a professor of mechanical engineering at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. Pete works with artificial intelligence for medical applications. Paul and Pete will talk about what it means to be human as robots grow in capability and about cultural differences in tech expectations between China and the U.S. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, this is Paul Taylor. I'm here for all things new.tech with Pete Schull, who's an old friend of mine. He's uh, currently a professor of mechanical engineering at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. He graduated with a PhD from Stanford University, and he used to attend the church where I am a pastor at way back. And he's been in China now almost eight years working as a professor and working primarily on um, artificial intelligence for medical purposes with robotics and movement sensors and the such. So, Pete, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Paul. This is great. Yeah, I always tell the story, but I remember when you interviewed for your job at the university, we were in India together on a missions trip and you're... Your Chinese was a little rudimentary, right, at that point? Yes, that was one of my first Chinese conversations is them calling me and we were in India and they weren't speaking English. So <laughs> I was a little yeah. nervous, but I guess it worked out. I guess it worked out. I'm sure your Chinese has improved since then. Well, uh, I'd love to just start off hearing your story, kind of how you got to where you are, how your faith um, kind of weaved into your uh, tech life and, and how you ended up in China as an engineering professor? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in northwestern Montana near um, Glacier Park in a town called Kalispell. So it's a beautiful environment surrounded by mountains and lakes. And so my childhood was a lot of camping and fishing and hiking and backpacking. And then I loved to play sports. I, I loved basketball and football and a lot of different sports. And so much of my childhood was really focused on physical activity and movement and just loving and enjoying the outdoors. And school was a, wasn't really something I was interested in or it was fine. I just went to school, but it was mostly so that we could then finish school and go play sports or make it to the weekend so we could go camping. So I didn't, right. I didn't think a lot about engineering or technology or anything like that when I was growing up. And, uh, in some ways, that was nice. I didn't feel the pressure of school that a lot of people yeah. feel now. But sure. I got to the end of high school, and I'd always been pretty good at math, and uh, I wasn't sure what I should study in college. And I knew, it, in my mind, there were three things you could do with math. One, you could become a high school math teacher, because that's I had a high school math teacher, and I thought I, I wasn't interested in that. And the second was um, I could become a surveyor. And I had done that a couple summers as, an, as a summer job, and I didn't wasn't that interested. So the third was I heard you could become an engineer. So 
So I decided <laughs> to study engineering. Because you heard that. somewhere, somewhere it on the grapevine. Related to math. So right. I went to college at Letourneau University. It's a small Christian college in Longview, Texas. So it was uh, smaller than my high school. There's only about wow. 1,400 students there. But when I got there, um, it was totally different than my previous experience. Um, so most of the people would stay in dorms. And I remember getting to the dorm and within the first few weeks, I came back. And um, so I, I studied mechanical engineering and they kind of grouped people in dorms, mostly based on major. So most people were engineers or maybe computer science on our dorm. And I came back and in the middle of the floor, somebody had taken a motorcycle, a Honda CBR, one of these fast motorcycles, and they had taken yeah. the whole thing apart. And so I walked in and on the floor was a motorcycle taken apart. All the, all the screws were out and all the, the fairing was off and the motor was out and the transmission. And I was, what is going on? And they were just doing it for fun. And wow. taking the whole thing apart and was modifying it to make it faster. It was already super fast. And so at it's that a classic point, college thing to do, classic college thing and uh, yeah. very hands on. So people were always modifying things. Um, the floor next to us, they they acquired a shopping cart from a local Walmart and they <laughs> acquired put, acquired. They put a they put um, they put a chainsaw engine on it and they motorized it so you could drive around so they would they would drive wow. to class and uh so i got into that and um over the summers i would buy parts and try to put motors together and so i think at that point i i started to to fall in love with technology and engineering and a lot of my energy and focus somewhat shifted from sports and outdoor activity which i still love but i became fascinated with technology and especially anything involving movement movement right. of um, devices. So I just really loved robotics and then human movement as, all, as, as well. And um, a lot of robotics tries to mimic humans. Humans are sort of the ultimate and the, the most awesome robot you could make would be a human. And so right. I became very interested in that. Um, I took a mandatory like basic programming, C programming course and uh, all the mechanical engineers had to do that. And everyone else hated it because it was just programming. And But I loved it, it was my favorite class. So after that, I started taking a lot more programming courses and uh, eventually um, studied kind of half programming electronics and half mechanical. And then also during that time <clears throat> in high school, I had somewhat, I grew up in a, a strong Christian family, but I had somewhat walked away from the faith and largely because I um, just thought I believed because my parents and my friends and everyone believed. And so I had walked away to some, to some degree. And while I was in college, I met a professor that I've heard mentioned before on this podcast, and his name is William Graff. Bill Graff is what we call them. And he was um, an electrical engineering professor who had been grown up as an atheist and uh, a Jewish atheist. And he had come to faith in his 30s as a PhD student, basically by searching um, searching out different religions and through Francis, Chafe, Francis Chafer and um, C.S. Lewis and some of the phil philosophical Christians, he had come to faith. And so he would hold a weekly 
he called it a, a Bible study, but it was basically a come and ask any questions you want study. And so every, every Sunday night, he would just open his house. And so I had a thousand questions about faith, and I didn't feel like I was getting answers um, before. And so he had, he was a, a, a scientist and an engineer, and so he had thought through most of these. So we would go to the study, and <clears throat> he would say, you know, anyone can ask questions, and usually a few people would have some questions, and then they'd wait, and then say, they'd say, okay, Pete, how about you? And I would pull out a list of questions <laughs> that I had written down, and I would just start asking them questions about apparent contradictions within the Bible or philosophical questions about different religions, or, I mean, deep questions, the, the problem of pain, um, yeah. about people that don't know. And basically every question he had thought about and studied in detail. And so slowly he would answer those questions and go through that. Um, and then he was just an excellent teacher and he loved his students. And so largely through his influence and that study, I came back to faith in a slow way. But it's like the intellectual piece was missing for me. Um, right. And then... During that time, I also saw God work and to, to change my own life um, in, in pretty big ways. And so that was uh, a huge part of my faith. So through that um, time in college, I guess I developed a strong interest in, in robotics and studying human movement. And then my faith became real and the intellectual part was added. And then after college, I went to, to grad school at Stanford. And uh, and then while I was there, I think my, my faith continued to grow, and I met um, several strong believers that were also engineers and computer scientists through the InterVarsity Graduate Fellowship. And so I had a good good experience there. And then at PBC as well, I met a lot of people, and PBC is very techy, lots of tech people because yes. we're in Silicon Valley. So yes, we like was, our tech. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Um, also strengthen my faith to see other tech people struggling yeah. through some of the <clears throat> some of the faith issues um, most of them working with colleagues that weren't believers so that's right. kind of where I where I ended up and then I got married right after my first year in uh, at Stanford <clears throat> and uh, my wife Chris and I um, just developed a sense of wanting to go abroad somewhere and to, I guess, use the, the training that I had at Stanford to become a professor and then also just, I guess, share the delight and good news with other people around us. So eventually yeah. we ended up moving to Shanghai um, seven and a half years ago. And then since then, I've been uh, working as a research professor here in the robotics department, mechanical engineering, then robotics department. So that's, uh, I guess, a short story of how we ended up here. And my, yeah, son, my cool. son was uh, a year and a half when we moved here. And then we had two more daughters here since then. So wow. that's kind of where we're at. That's awesome. It's really cool to me listening to your hmm. story and just putting, kind of connecting the dots of how important um, professors were to you in your faith, um, both in your faith and in your kind of professional academic career and then now you get to be in that role for others and in a place where there's probably very very much fewer christians in the 
in the academic world that you live in and, and operate in. So mm -hmm. that's really powerful. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I had that professor William Graff and there was another one, Roger Gonzalez, who was a strong, a strong follower, a believer. And uh, he also had a very high, um, high level of research. And he's the one that taught me how to do research and basically helped me get into to, um, grad school at Stanford. And so I think you're mm. exactly right. They had these professors that were more like mentors and yeah. they, they really formed who I am. And that's a huge motivation for my job. And the part that I, one of the parts I love the most is the, the mentoring relationship you get to have with your students. You get to, it's different than college because you basically get to be with them for five years and meet with them yeah. every week, multiple times a week. And we play a huge role in their lives, not just for engineering, but also they're going through life decisions. They're getting sure. married and trying to find their first jobs. And so that's exactly right. I had a very good experience, formative experience. And so it's um, nice. I get to be on the other side of it now. Yeah. One of the things we've chatted about is uh, you have a unique perspective doing technology in a non-Western environment working. I mean, kind of a, both a non-Western environment and an academic environment, you know, you're in a Chinese university. And so that's, um, I imagine there's some differences there compared to people working in an industry setting in Silicon Valley. Um, what, what do you notice that's different kind of in Chinese culture? Like, you know, in the U S we, we, we pursue technology and we're coming from presumably some type of Judeo-Christian Western background ethic and, that's not the case in Chinese culture. What what differences do you notice? Yeah, so I wouldn't say I'm an expert on Chinese culture yet, but just sure. the, ob <laughs> the observations that I've made and uh, other Chinese people can correct me later if I'm wrong. But the, some of the observations I've made is from the technology perspective, I feel like in the West, in the U.S., when we talk about technology, we usually talk about it as a tool that can have two sides to it. It can be good and benefit us, but it can also be detrimental. It, um, you know, social media can connect us, but it can also become a time sink and drain us and pull us away. And AI can benefit our lives in a lot of, in a lot of ways, but people also talk about, is AI going to take over? Are the robots going to take over? And is AI going to be bad? And one thing I've noticed here is that there's there isn't much pessimism for technology. It's very optimistic. And probably a big reason is because the government here has been successful in pulling, pulling more people out of poverty than ever in the history of the world. And largely that is highly related to technology and technological development. And so as people have been coming out of poverty, they've also been seeing uh, cell phones uh, invented and computers invented and AI, and so there's a, a very high level of optimism for any technology, which is, is very nice when I'm in technology. There's sure, very little yeah. resistance. Yeah, there's little resistance and there's a lot of excitement about any new technology and companies are very interested in working with laboratories. But I sometimes I wonder if there's almost a trust and a hope in the technology yeah. that it's because there isn't a hope in a higher being it's it's like that might be one of the uh, alternatives is that our hope is in technology. So that's right. one area that I could see potentially being different. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. It strikes me, it kind of reveals to me how much I operate within my own culture, which is completely normal. But one of the things I, I repeat a lot is that people get excited about technology because it offers to extend our humanity and people get scared about technology because it threatens to degrade our humanity. And I usually say, if I were to walk down downtown Palo Alto and stop somebody randomly on the street and ask them, are you at all worried that technology could destroy humanity? Then most of them would say, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. kind of in the back of my mind, I'm that, that's a worry I carry. But it sounds like you're saying if I were to stop somebody on the streets of Shanghai and ask them that question, they'd say, what are you talking about? No, technology has brought our family out of poverty. We're able to move here. My son is an engineer and look what it's done. I have TVs now and computers and cell phones and I can pay with stuff on my cell phone. And yeah, I think most people would be very optimistic and they're not, they're not worried that AI is going to take over. That's really fascinating. So then, you know, in the Silicon Valley, there's this whole recent last several years movement around ethics and corporations are hiring chief officers of ethics and C-level, you know, positions. Um, is there that conversation or is there a tech ethics conversation happening in China or just not at all? There's, they're not worried about it. Um, I haven't heard much about it. I'm not quite, I'm not in that space as much. Um, sure. I, I get a sense that there is a, there is a strong sense of honor and shame and doing the right thing. If your company is, is called out for doing something that's not, that's shameful, you're stealing data or you're misusing it. It's extremely bad. Like people feel that. And as a collective culture, you feel that. So, I mean, I wonder in some ways if there's some of that that's built in, just you don't want to be, especially the bigger you get, you don't want to be the company that's, that's seen as doing something unethical because mm. that, that feels in an honor shame culture that's very shameful. So, sure. uh, but I could also see, I mean, they're still developing and they often will follow um, what's the, the state of the art in other countries. So I wouldn't be too surprised if in a few years we start to see chief ethics officers pop up. And a lot of the big tech companies have VC funding from the States and from Europe. So I, I would, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see that. In the next few years. Yeah. And the field that you're, you know, engaged in is artificial and in, artificial intelligence within a lot of medical applications. And that's an area, at least in the U.S., you know, bioethics and how far do you go and what kind of cells you're allowed to use and mm. um, whether life extension versus life, you know, th those types of questions are at the center of a lot of the ethical debates. Do you hear those types of conversations in some of your work with uh, AI and medical usage? Uh, yeah. So the what I do is wearable sensor systems for, I guess, detecting human movements and human signals. And so fortunately, the stuff we do is not controversial in the West or yeah. in China. So uh, yeah, I'm not very familiar with that. Yeah. There's not a lot of ethical debates about yeah. measuring the elbow angles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> fine. You can measure people's heart rate and their elbows and stuff. Right. That's yeah. interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff you do with robotics. And I, um, when we chatted earlier, you were saying how you know, it's becoming more and more apparent that robotics are able to surpass humans in a lot of mm -hmm. physical aspects. And you said something interesting during your story where, where if you could create a human, that would be the ultimate robot. 
which is a really interesting statement to unpack. But um, from a Christian perspective, like, what do you think of that? I mean, what does that mean in terms of what it means to be human and um, how robotics is kind of bleeding into humanity? What, what kind of thoughts do you have on that? Yeah, I think most of the robotics research community worldwide and including um, China is, I mean, the ultimate standard is if you can create a, a robot that is like a human, just because humans are so amazing. And so actually we have succeeded in several aspects and surpassed humans' abilities in certain aspects. So robots are now, they can move faster and they can pick up more um, weight heavy things and they're more accurate with movement um, and they can also a lot of robotics would be I mean AI is considered robotics it's the intelligence part so actually a lot of AI has is starting to surpass human ability so a, a lot of the initial AI stuff was motivated by looking at cat and dog pictures and determining which is which and uh, people have done studies where these AI algorithms can actually surpass human ability to distinguish uh, these different pictures. You might, you may have a picture with a, a blurry dog that's kind of covered by leaves or something, and the AI algorithm can actually determine more accurately than a human. And uh, you have other stuff like, I can imagine, you know, an Alexa app, which is hearing our voice, and it, she still messes up sometimes, but I can imagine sometime in the near future where Alexa can determine what we're saying more accurately than a human can because we don't always hear exactly correctly. And uh, th the same thing in medicine, right? Um, in medicine, doctors need to prescribe. Uh, they, need to, they need to diagnose and then they need to prescribe. And it's, it's very likely that AI will help, at least help doctors perform better at diagnosing and prescribing than they can without AI. And at some point, maybe even better than doctors can. In, in general. So it makes you think, what is it, what does it mean to be a human if you have a robot that's stronger and faster than a human and it can think better than a human? Is that a human or is it more than a human? And so as a Christian, I've been thinking about this and it seems like um, you need to define what it means to be human. That's a pretty big question is your definition of human. And so I personally, as a Christian, I would define it based on um, what the Bible says uh, it says the Shema or the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so in my mind, those are the four key elements. And the strength is kind of there, right? The robots already can do the strength part. We have physical bodies and we can make robots that have physical bodies. There still are some things that aren't there. Um, human. Most people, when they see a robot moving, they can tell it's a robot. And humans are much more fluid, and we have a wide range of things we can do. We can we can climb ropes, and robots can't do that. Uh, but it's possible that could be surpassed. Um, there was a demonstration in Japan a few years ago with three humans or robots that went up on a stage, and they all three were dancing. And then people had to guess which was a robot and which was a human. And you 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 can watch the video. And then what happened, it's very hard to tell. And it's actually a trick. At the end, they reveal that all three were robots. There were no humans. So it's possible that we could, with the strength and the physical sense, we could, that could be surpassed. And then love the love the Lord your God with all your mind. That's the AI side. That's, you know, computation. Calculators have already surpassed 
we can't do, you know, humans can't calculate big numbers as much. And then AI is a lot of pattern recognition. That part could be surpassed. So then the final two parts are the, the heart and the soul. And so what is heart? Heart is kind of will and intentions and sometimes emotions. So some people would argue that you can create robots that have emotions. And uh, people have tried to make robots that have faces that look like people or dogs. And it will smile at you and you, you may feel some emotion. So, but is the robot actually feeling emotion is, is hard to say. But I think the will and intention, at least in the scriptures, that's often related to sin. And your will, you know, your will is against the will of God or you're, you're willfully disobeying. I just don't, you know, we, we don't believe that animals have a will and animals can't really sin or not. So I think that fundamentally you can't create a robot with a will. And then the soul is the last part. The soul, our soul will go on to live after we die. And so I wouldn't say that we could create a robot with a soul. So it seems like we can get half of it, maybe the, the, the strength and the mind, but the soul and the heart, it seems like fundamentally would be very hard to make. It's not I mean, impossible. I don't think humans are in charge of making souls at this point. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think you've met my dog if you think that animals can't sin. Uh, <laughs> no, I have met your a, dog, actually. <laughs> that's a conversation <laughs> Very for another time. <laughs> true, true. Okay. Yeah, so I can uh, see but, that you know, point. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that for later. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I love that, that characterization. I mean, humanity of those four elements. But then, you know, as you were talking, what struck me was that, that the, the over overarching command of that is to love God mm. with those four things. And the, you know, the aspect of love implies some kind of relationship with another creature mm. that also has a strength, a mind, a heart, and a soul. And that mm -hmm. got me thinking about kind of relationships between robots, you know, and mm. obviously they could have, you know, they could exchange information. They could, have a transactional relationship, but they can't presumably have any type of, I don't know. I mean, they can coordinate, they can communicate, but they can't have a emotional relationship or a personal relationship. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm <laughs> over speaking, but. Yeah. It seems hard to imagine a robot actually feeling love or feeling an emotion. You can play like some SIM game or something and you have multiple characters that are interacting and stuff. But do they actually feel and do they love each other and do they have a relationship? It seems like that's not possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. The other the other thing I wanted to go back to something you said is that um, you know, you made you made the point that kind of human movement and even human intelligence is the standard by which you evaluate things. So, you know, if you could create a robot that could you know, it's better because it surpasses humans. But that that's an interesting observation to me because what's to say that we're the best, like we should be the bar that should be surpassed. Um, and, and it's interesting that, you know, you want to create something that can move and can think and you use humans as the paradigm versus starting from scratch and saying, hey, wheels would be better or mm -hmm. four limbs would be better or six limbs or... I don't know. Is that just kind of a default thing? Is is there discussion about that, or is that just 
people naturally say humans are the model? Yeah, I think in the scientific world, they would say there's a, a big focus on nature and looking at what nature can do because there's an acceptance that nature is better than wheels and bridges. And in some ways, um, that's like the next frontier. And so when we look in nature, humans are one of the most incredible creatures, uh, at least from the thinking perspective, the ability of humans to think and to build things and to, to coordinate and organize and to distinguish and to invent. Humans can invent. Um, but then also the dexterity and the way they can move and all those things, they're just, they're one of the best things that we can see in nature. But I wonder from, uh, like you mentioned, the, in the West, there's a Judeo-Christian background and coming out of Europe, the same thing. I wonder if part of it could be related to that, where it's, it's um, you know, we feel that humans were placed in dominion over all of creation. And so there's, there's some sense that that is the standard, like that humans are the best in all of creation. So what we're trying to attain, the pinnacle would be to match what God has placed as the top. And if we can exceed that, maybe in a, a Tower of Babel type situation or something, Maybe that's the unspoken standard. Yeah, that's interesting. It also makes me think of just the um, idea that from a biblical perspective, humans are created in the image of God. We, mm -hmm. you know, God is the standard by which we measure ourselves and we are given strength and love and intelligence and passion according to those characteristics from God. And so then we're trying to create that you know, we're trying to create robots or other creatures in our image. Mm -hmm. And then we're the standard by which we create. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then, and then, you know, we want them to surpass us. We want them, we want to create something in our image, but that's better. Yes. And yes. Yeah. It's really I, interesting. I don't think anyone would say this, but there is a, a, a sense of what surpasses humans. Well, God is kind of the thing that surpasses humans. And so I don't think anyone would say it, but in a sense, Google is trying to be God in the sense that they want to know all information as much as possible. And in my research area, where it's wearable systems, we're trying to measure and quantify the whole body, every part of it, every movement. I mean, there's a whole movement called quantified self. And it's essentially, can we wear enough sensors to quantify every part of the human? And so that is clearly surpassing humans, right? I can't look at you, Paul, and quantify everything. The sensors are already much better at measuring elbow angles and knee angles. But I could create a bunch of sensors that could start to approach that. You know, I could, in theory, measure every single square inch of your body and the movement of it. And uh, I could measure your heart rate and your blood flow and your eye dilation, your muscle movement. And so in that sense, it would be surpassing humans and going towards the God level. Of course, you'd have to get down to the, the cell level or the atomic level or the quarks. And maybe that's never achievable, but we're trying to get to that level of what God knows instantly. Um, we're trying to go towards that trajectory. Yeah, that's a great observation. Just the, I've thought about that a lot, the collection of data and the, I mean, you know, you're talking about the quantified self. Like if you were to quantify everything that's going on in my body right now, that that's, virtually an infinite data set. I mean, I suppose it's not actually infinite, but 
you know, all the, from, yeah, from the quarks to the electrons, to the temperature of each cell to, I mean, yeah. virtually infinite. And like, we couldn't even imagine, you know, calculating all that data. What, what would we do with it? How would we store it? And yet that's, there's like the, it's kind of like the asymptote, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're getting mm -hmm. towards, but, but we're never, we'll never quite get there. And then, and there's this sense of like data is the solution, right? Yes. How does that work with some of the stuff you're doing? I mean, you're measuring movement and then presumably you're, you know, you're collecting information so you can solve certain problems. Mm -hmm. What are the, mm -hmm. what are the problems that you're trying to solve? Yeah. So a lot of what I do is AI for medical applications. And so uh, it is true that the more data we collect in theory, the more we can understand different diseases, especially movement related diseases. Right. So we're, we're doing some wearable systems for um, stroke rehabilitation. And uh, uh, most of the rehab happens in a clinic for an hour or two per week. But then the rest, the 95, the other 95% of the time they're at home without any kind of measurement or intervention and who knows what's going on. So if we could measure and quantify that data of the person who's recovering from a stroke while they're at home and we could help them in their stroke um, their stroke rehabilitation training or paradigm, we could really improve the rate of recovery and we could improve the how fast they recover and the chances of recovery based on these measurements. So in some sense, right. that's very true. Um, or Parkinson's disease, if we can measure the movement, uh, we could start to understand more what is causing this problem. And uh, there's a lot of movement-related diseases that are unsolved at this point. So huh. it seems like the first step is measuring and quantifying those uh, movement-related diseases. And also there's obviously uh, neurological-related factors and, and there's blood-related factors, and uh, genetics and DNA, but movement is one of the most fundamental. So there is a sense that, well, if we can measure this stuff, we can understand it better. And then the second aspect is, can we train people? Can we automatically give haptic feedback or visual feedback that would sort of move their body in a, an optimal way. Whereas right now we have doctors and nurses mostly verbally saying something. You should move right. your arm in this way, or they're physically grabbing the arm and they're moving it. And so that's only as good as the doctor or nurse can do it. And there's some subjectivity between doctors and nurses. And so the good thing about robots is they are not subjective. They do exactly right. the same thing every single time. And so in some cases, you might want to do exactly the same thing. And so, for, and also with sensors, they're going to measure exactly the same measurement and give an objective answer. Whereas um, a nurse might write down a, a score on how good they're doing and there may be some differences. So in that sense, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a little bit, it's true, but it, it's, um, you got to be careful of extrapolating or projecting that trajectory and saying, if we just keep doing this forever, then eventually um, we'll solve all the problems. And there are people that say like, we might live forever, or we, we might live like 300 years or 500 years because based on technology and progress, we're just going to keep solving all of these diseases and all these problems. And eventually we'll just have them all solved and we won't need to die anymore. So yeah. that that's kind of a, it's a logical conclusion if you go down this path. 
Yeah, and you see that in industries. I mean, in Silicon Valley, there's life. I mean, there's, there's whole industries being created around doing that um, transcendent life and, and all sorts mm. of stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of themes there. I mean, it's very interesting, the kind of just assumption that if we know enough, then we can understand enough and then we can solve it all. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, maybe that's just intrinsic to the scientific method is, you know, you collect data and that leads to understanding and that leads to solutions. But um, mm-hmm. is there a limit to that? And I think from a Christian perspective, there's, we would say there is some limit, but what that is, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also that's the practical side of science. And there is still a group that they do science for the love of knowledge and for the love of learning and that's, in theory, what it should be is we're just learning about our world and we're exploring. And I mean, we, we go to space and we explore. Or we go down to the bottom of the ocean and we explore. And so I feel like that's a God-given benefit, benefit and beauty of being human is he gave us this ability to explore and learn. There's no reason that we have to go explore the Amazon or the ocean. Or I grew up in Montana, the beautiful mountains. There's right. no like real practical reason to have that we could have all just been born on flat plains and never known any better and we could have never been able to discover microscopes and sensors and all this so there is that i think most people in science they also do have this sense of exploration and the awe and beauty of discovering which is um from god and i think we all hope secretly hope that that would never stop. Like, I don't think we would actually want to find, like discover the last thing and then we're done. Right. That would actually yeah. be very sad. For, That's true. We'd, That's we would point. all lose our jobs, but right. more importantly, <laughs> we wouldn't, we wouldn't know. It wouldn't be exciting. And so yeah. I think there's um, a paradox. On the one hand, we, we kind of think that we can solve all the problems. On the other hand, we hope that we can't solve all the problems because then we won't get to explore anymore yeah well said yeah and that that awe is the first part of worship you know worship is just awe directed at someone and so um that's a great observation that scientists do have a sense of awe um or at least they ought so that's that's great yeah well there's a couple questions i usually like to like to ask at the end and you know based on our earlier conversation i'm realizing maybe how Western these questions are. But the, the, the first question is maybe, hopefully you haven't been in China long enough that you've lost <laughs> all your uh, all your apocalyptic Western tendencies. But um, <laughs> the first question is, you know, as you think of technology, what what scares you or what what concerns do you have about where technology might might take us as a as a species? Mm. Yeah, I, maybe this maybe I have been in China too long because <laughs> of that. Um, I tend to be I tend to be more skeptical of the the doomsday AI is going to take over and my yeah. my concerns and fears are more that external factors not related to technology will somehow block the progress it will be political or um just laziness or some other factor will block progress and people will basically be missing out on um better treatments or um uh, mostly I'm talking about in the health health realm. Yeah. 
Um, the right. medical field, for some reason, tends to be way behind the rest of the world on technology. So mm. you go to your doctor, often they're, well, maybe in the Silicon Valley it's better, but they're often using like super old software. You know, it's like Windows 97 or right. some software that's 30 years ago because they're afraid to update it because somebody might get hurt or something. And so a lot of technology and FDA approval and all these things it takes so long to get yeah. in, there's just a sense that it's not worth it or the risk is too high or, you know, a lot of AI will displace jobs or it will change jobs. And so the established community, you know, doctors don't want to hear that there's a robot that's going to be better than them or would be somehow helpful. And that is a long way down the road, but it is clear that at least some AI could help doctors make better decisions. Um, but maybe they would think that's well that's kind of the first step down a slippery slope and so we don't sure. want to we don't want to open that door and so i think the the thing that i worry about sometimes is um it's almost like you have people that are are thirsting or they're very hungry and we have food and water that we can give but we're getting blocked for some external mm. reason and so um that that's my fear is just that we get somehow we get blocked or there's um, a narrative that that technology is evil or we do have, I mean, there are things that happen, right? You can have AI cars that crash. And uh, even though statistically it can be way, way safer than humans, but you hear that story and that's in the news. And so now we shut down all AI, you know, AI yeah. cars indefinitely or something like that. So sorry, it's not too apocalyptic, but those are my no, that's good. practical fears are just that, the stuff we're doing, I want it to get blocked because scientifically we haven't solved it, but I just feel bad if we solve the problem, but then it can't get out to people because of some other reason. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Thank you. Well, the, the last question, the corresponding question is what, what gets you excited? I mean, what hopes do you have? What optimism do you have about where technology might take us? Yeah, I, so that would be the other side of the coin is um, there have been some incredible breakthroughs and strides a lot related to AI and to wearable technologies, especially for medical applications. And uh, I'm just excited to see how this can extend the um, possible treatments, how it can improve treatment outcomes. And, and then also in sports, this is kind of more of an interest. I also love sports, but you can in theory use um, these wearable sensors and AI to say, training to shoot in the perfect way, right? So right. I love basketball. I would love to be trained to shoot like Stephen Curry, right? And sure. Making threes all the time or um, running. I mean, we can train people to run in ways that are optimal. So you could run farther and faster, like using this to run faster would be just really fun and to reduce injuries. People get yeah. injured a lot. So that's um, more of like a fun and interest. I mean, could we somehow train kids when they're young to throw a football in a, in the, the optimal way. And so eventually yeah. we get all the sports are all of a sudden the level has improved a lot. And, uh, so that's kind of a fun area where I would be. I'm thinking there's a, I'm thinking there's a whole new field of sports uh, statistics based on mm. knee angles yeah. and shoulder rotation and yes, <laughs> playing fantasy football right now. I can just imagine a whole nother, <laughs> hundreds of columns of statistics for all my players and yeah. I don't know if I want to go there but uh, mm, yeah. you've got to hire an AI bot to, to sort 
sort through that and then make recommendations. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Pawn yeah. it off to the AI bot. It's a good call. <laughs> Well, that's great. Thanks, Pete. Uh, it's been a really fun conversation. There's a lot more we could explore, but I, uh, I enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, thanks, Paul. This is fun. And I've listened to most of these and I'm excited to hear more as you go forward. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks. Yeah, Paul. Thank you for listening to allthingsnew.tech. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and that it sparked more questions and discussion about the intersection of theology and technology. Thanks for joining us. 